You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. But for now, I'm just blessing y'all with this one. A continuation of the first. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. And that was an excerpt of Vinnie Paz singing writings on disobedience. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is the evolution of the Bernie 2016, Bernie 2020, and Howie 2020 podcasts in our ongoing journey through the social and political landscape of media in the world. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can go to the website YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You'll find all the back episodes of this and the earlier podcast there, as well as some links. You can make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. And we're going to start this episode out with some news that just broke in the last couple of days about the assassination of a nuclear scientist in Iran. And we're going to dive in a little bit into some history around the same topic before we move on to some other items. The first piece up here is written by Juan Cole. It is published at juancole.com. The Iranian newspaper Etelat reports that on Friday, what it called armed terrorist elements mounted an assault on the automobile carrying Dr. Moshin Fakhrizadeh, who was badly wounded in the midst of the clash between his security team and the assailants and was transported to hospital where he died of his injuries. Fakhrizadeh an eminent nuclear scientist, was the head of the research and innovation organization within the Iranian Ministry of Defense and Armed Forces Logistics. Iran's Chief Justice Ayatollah Syed Ibrahim Raisi characterized the attack as by, quote, foreigners in international Zionism, with, he said, the sinister objective of forestalling the scientific progress of the country. The Iranian government believes that Israel's Mossad carried out the assassination. The Speaker of the Iranian Parliament, Mohammad Bakir Kalabaf, also blamed Israel, but included among the culprits, quote, global arrogance, the regime's term for American imperialism in the Middle East. Likely the operation, whether by Israel or Saudi Arabia, or both, was intended to spike tensions in U.S.-Iranian relations so as to make it more difficult for Joe Biden to start back up the 2015 nuclear deal or Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA. Israel does not acknowledge its covert operations, but it seems the most likely culprit. Trump withdrew from the JCPOA in May 2018 and has strangled Iran with an unprecedented trade and financial embargo. Iran had given up 80% of its civilian nuclear enrichment program in 2015 in return for a lifting of international and U.S. economic sanctions. 
because Trump's Secretary of the Treasury, Steven Mnuchin, has threatened third-party sanctions on firms in countries that deal with Iran. The country has never received any sanctions relief from any quarter, despite having completely abided by its obligations in 2015 to 2018. In fact, the U.S. moved from sanctions to blockade, preventing Iran from so much as selling its petroleum. Since 2018, in order to demonstrate its displeasure in having been taken for a ride, Iran has acted out by contravening some nuclear deal stipulations in relatively minor ways. In other words, the nuclear deal had an excellent prospect of forestalling Iran from ever moving to militarize its civilian nuclear enrichment program, but Trump's destruction of it had has had no success in stopping Iran from enriching uranium and stockpiling it and in establishing spheres of influence in Syria and Lebanon. Trump and his cronies are afraid that Biden and his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, both of whom were deeply involved in the negotiations towards the nuclear deal, will revive it. Reviving the JCPOA could bring Iran into the world economy and lead it to be open to pressures from Europe and the U.S. to change its behavior. Israel and Saudi Arabia do not believe that Iran has no military nuclear ambitions, and they see it as a geopolitical enemy whom they would like the U.S. to crush for them and keep weak. As the Bush administration broke the legs of Iraq, once one of the more formidable countries in the Middle East. That is, the likely alternative to a return to the 2015 nuclear deal is not the unstable status quo, but eventually a U.S.-Iran war that would be cheered on by Israel and Saudi Arabia. Not only cheered on, but likely materially supported. Iran does not have a nuclear weapons program, and has not had one since about 2003. Back then, Fakhrizadeh was the head of it, after it mothballed its rudimentary military experiments once the existence of its nuclear enrichment program was revealed by spies of the People's Jihadi, or Mojahedin-e-Kalk organization, known as MKO, or more commonly in the U.S., MEK, Iran kept to civilian enrichment. Uranium in nature is mostly inner U-238 but it is sprinkled with volatile U-235. If you enrich uranium-238 with more U-235 than is found in nature, you increase its volatility. If you enrich to 3.5%, you make it into fuel that can run nuclear reactors. It gets hot and you can boil water with it that turns turbines. That's all it is, an exotic way of boiling water. Iran has a reactor and is building more, down at Boucher. You'd have to enrich uranium to about 95% U-235 to make a bomb. Iran has never enriched beyond 19.5%, which is the level that is needed to run its small medical reactor, and is the cutoff for low enriched uranium. There is no reason to think that Iran knows how to enrich to 95% for a bomb, or has the various additional technologies that would be necessary to construct a bomb. Sometimes you see U.S. journalists allege that Iran has, quote, enough enriched uranium to make two bombs. That is frankly ridiculous. 
You don't make bombs by the amount of uranium you possess that is enriched to 3.5 or 4.5% without the necessary level of enrichment. You just have some rocks that could be used to heat water. Iran accepted extensive and intrusive inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency of its civilian nuclear enrichment program under the JCPOA from 2015 on. It was earlier under inspects as a signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. The IAEA has consistently certified that no Iranian nuclear material has ever been diverted, for example, to possible military uses. No country actively under UN inspection has ever developed a nuclear weapon. Fakhrizadeh was hardly the only high-powered Iranian nuclear scientist, and murdering him by terrorism likely has no implications for Iran's ongoing enrichment. My guess is that the regime will decline to take the bait by reacting in a dramatic way. As for reviving the nuclear deal, the Iranian foreign minister has said that if the U.S. went back to observing the JCPOA and lifted the financial and trade blockade on Iran, Iran would go back to observing its obligations strictly. That is what Trump, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman are deathly afraid of. And speaking of those three, I guess minus Trump, but uh, Netanyahu and bin Salman met with uh, Pompeo, Secretary of State, in Israel just within the last couple of weeks. Next up, a piece published at CommonDreams.org, written by Jake Johnson. Amid swirling questions over what, if any, role the United States played in the assassination of top Iranian nuclear scientist Moshe Fakhrizadeh, President Donald Trump on Friday amplified to his 88 million followers a Twitter post describing the killing as a, quote, major psychological and professional blow to Iran. Sina Tusi, a senior research analyst at the National Iranian American Council, NIAC, characterized the U.S. president's move as a, quote, implicit approval if there ever was one. The president also retweeted a New York Times report on the killing, an ambush that took place as Fakhrizadeh was traveling by car in northern Iran. As of this writing, Trump, who ordered the killing of top Iranian General Qasem Soleimani earlier this year, has not otherwise responded to the assassination, which is drawing widespread widespread condemnation from anti-war groups and Iranian officials. It is not entirely clear who carried out the Fakhrizadeh killing, but some, including Iran's top diplomat, Javad Zarif, said they believe Israel, the top U.S. ally in the region, may be responsible, noting its history of similar attacks. Quote, Terrorists murdered an eminent Iranian scientist today, said Zarif. This cowardice, with serious indications of Israeli role, shows desperate warmongering of perpetrators. Given that the move came in the wake of reports that Trump recently requested options for a military strike on Iran, and news that Israel has been preparing for such an attack for weeks, suspicions that the U.S. or Israel, or both, played a role in the killing are hardly fantastical. As the Times reported, quote, 
Mr. Fakhrizadeh had long been the number one target of the Mossad, Israel's intelligence service, which is widely believed to be behind a series of assassinations of scientists a decade ago that included some of Mr. Fakhrizadeh's deputies. One American official, along with two other intelligence officials, said that Israel was behind the attack on the scientist, according to the Times. Quote, It was unclear how much the United States may have known about the operation in advance, but the two nations are the closest of allies and have long shared intelligence regarding Iran. The White House and the CIA declined to comment. When Without War, an anti-war advocacy group tweeted Friday that, quote, if the U.S. was involved with this assassination, it'll be further evidence on top of the already heaping pile that Trump, Pompeo, and the other war hawks will do everything in their power to prevent the Biden administration from succeeding at diplomacy with Iran. Paul Kawika Martin, Senior Director of Policy and Political Affairs at Peace Action, added that the international community should condemn assassinations, especially those with apparent U.S. complicity, to provoke war or block efforts by a new administration to revive the nuclear agreement that made the world safer. And as, as that story uh, mentioned, this is not the first time that uh, Israel has been suspected of murdering Iranian nuclear scientists. There were uh, uh, more than one uh, assassination a, a decade or so ago in which they were implicated. And here's a story from that time. In fact, the next three stories are going to be referring to the uh, 2010 to 2012 um, time frame. This one was published by NBC at MSNBC. Uh, you can find it at federaljack.com. It's called Israel Teams with Terror Group to Kill Iran's Nuclear Scientist. U.S. Officials Admit. And remember, this was back in the Obama days. Deadly attacks on Iranian nuclear scientists are being carried out by an Iranian dissident group that is financed, trained, and armed by Israel's secret service, U.S. officials tell NBC News, confirming charges leveled by Iran's leaders. The group, the People's Mujahideen of Iran, has long been designated as a terrorist group by the United States, accused of killing American servicemen and contractors in the 1970s and supporting the takeover of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran before breaking with the Iranian mullahs in 1980. The attacks which have killed five Iranian nuclear scientists since 2007 and may have destroyed a missile research and development site have been carried out in dramatic fashion, with motorcycle-borne assailants often attaching small magnetic bombs to the exterior of the victims' cars. U.S. officials speaking on condition of anonymity said the Obama administration is aware of the assassination campaign, but has no direct involvement. Mother effer. The Obama administration is aware of the assassination campaign, but has no direct involvement. Well, friends, 
if you're aware of something like this, you should have involvement. Your involvement should be to try to stop it. The Iranians have no doubt who is responsible. Israel and the People's Mujahideen of Iran, known by various acronyms, including MEK, Mohammad Javad Larijani, a senior aide to Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, describes what Iranian leaders believe is a close relationship between Israel's secret service, the Mossad, and the People's Mujahideen of Iran, or MEK, which is considered a terrorist organization by the United States. The relation is very intricate and close, said Mohammad Javad Larijani, a senior aide to the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, Iran's supreme leader, speaking of the MEK and Israel. The, Isra- the Israelis are paying the Mujahideen. Some of their MEK agents are providing Israel with information, and they recruit and also manage logistical support. Moreover, he said, the Mossad, the Israeli Secret Service, is training MEK members in Israel on the use of motorcycles and small bombs. In one case, he said, Mossad agents built a replica of the home of an Iranian nuclear scientist so that the assassins could familiarize themselves with the layout prior to the attack. Much of what the Iranian government knows of the attacks and the links between Israel and MEK comes from interrogation of an assassin who failed to carry out an attack in late 2010 and the materials found on him, Larajani said. The U.S. educated Larajani, whose two younger brothers run the legislative and judicial branches of the Iranian government, said the Israelis' rationale is simple. Israel does not have direct access to our society. Mujahideen being Iranian and being part of Iranian society, they have a good number of places to get into the touch with people. So I think they are working hand-to-hand very close. And we do have very concrete documents. Two senior U.S. officials confirmed for NBC News the MEK's role in the assassinations, with one senior official saying, quote, All your inclinations are correct. A third official would not confirm or deny the relationship, saying only, It hasn't been clearly confirmed yet. All the officials denied any U.S. involvement in the assassinations. As it has in the past, Israel's foreign ministry declined comment, said a spokesman, quote, as long as we can't see all the evidence being claimed by NBC, the foreign ministry won't react to every gossip and report being published worldwide. For its part, the MEK pointed to a statement calling the allegations, quote, absolutely false. The sophistication of the attacks supports the Iranian claims that an experienced intelligence service is involved, experts say. In the most recent attack on January 11, 2012, Mostafa Ahmadi Roshan died in a blast in Tehran moments after two assailants on a motorcycle placed a small magnetic bomb on his vehicle. Roshan was a deputy director at the Natanz Uranium Enrichment Facility and was reportedly involved in procurement for the nuclear program, which Iran insists is not a weapons program. Previous attacks include the assassination of Masoud al-Mohammadi, killed by a bomb outside his Tehran home 
in January 2010, and an explosion in November of that year that took the life of Majid Shahiriari and wounded Faridun Abbasi Davani, who is now the head of Iran's Atomic Energy Organization. In the case of Roshan, the bomb appears to have been a shaped charge that directed all the explosive power inside the vehicle, killing him and his bodyguard, driver, but leaving the nearby traffic unaffected. Although Roshan was directly involved in the nuclear program, working at the huge centrifuge facility between Tehran and Qom, Iran's religious center, at least one other scientist who was killed wasn't linked to the Iranian nuclear program, according to Larajani. Speaking of bombing victim Ali Mohammadi, whom he described as a friend, Larajani told NBC News, quote, In fact, this guy who was assassinated was not involved in the nitty-gritty of the situation. He was a scientist, a physicist, working on the theoretically parts, theoretical parts of nuclear energy, which you can teach in every university. You can find it in every text. Quote, This is an Israeli plot, a dirty plot, Larajani added angrily. He also claimed the assassinations are not having an effect on the program and have only made scientists more resolute in carrying out their mission. Not so, said Ronan Bergman, an Israeli commentator and author of Israel's Secret War with Iran, in an upcoming book tentatively titled Mossad and the Art of Assassination. Israel has long used assassination against its enemies, quote, hoping that by taking out individuals, they can alter, change the course of history, says Ronan Bergman. Bergman said the attacks have three purposes, the most obvious being the removal of high-ranking scientists and their knowledge, the others forcing Iran to increase security for its scientists and facilities, and to spur, quote, white defections. He explained the latter this way. Scientists leaving the project afraid that they are going to be next on the assassination list and say, we don't want this. Indeed, we get good money, we are promoted, we are honored by everybody, but we might get killed. It isn't worth it. Maybe we should go back to teach in a university. There are unconfirmed reports in the Israeli press and elsewhere that Israel and the MEK were involved in a November 12 explosion that destroyed the Iranian missile research and development site at Bin Kaneh, 30 miles outside of Tehran. Among those killed was Major General Hassan Mogadam, Director of Missile Development for the Revolutionary Guard, and a dozen other researchers. So important was Mogadam that Ayatollah Khomeini attended his funeral. Unlike the assassinations, Iran claims the missile site explosion was an accident. The MEK, meanwhile, trumpeted it, but denied any involvement. Indeed, there may be other covert operations carried out either by Israel acting alone or in concert with others, according to Bergman. Quote, Two labs caught fire, said Bergman, enumerating the attacks. Scientists got blown up or disappeared. A missile base in the R&D base of the Revolutionary Guard exploded some time ago, with the director of the R&D division of the Revolutionary Guard being killed along with his soldiers. Bergman added, So a long series of something that was termed by an Israeli cabinet minister as, quote, 
mysterious mishaps happening and rehappening to the project. Then the Iranians claim this is Israel Mossad trying to sabotage our attempts to be a nuclear superpower. Dr. Uzi Rabi, director of the Dayan Center in Tel Aviv University, said the supposed accidents could all be part of psychological warfare conducted against Iran. It seems logical, it makes sense, he said, of a possible MEK involvement. And it's been done before. Rabi, who regularly briefs Israel's parliament, the Knesset, on Iran, also said the ultimate goal of the range of covert operations being carried out by Israel is, quote, to damage the politics of survivability, to send a message that could strike fear into the rulers of Iran. For the United States, the role of the MEK is particularly troublesome. In 1997, the State Department designated it a terrorist group, justifying it with an unclassified 40-page summary of the organization's activities going back more than 25 years. The paper sent to Congress in 1998 was written by Wendy Sherman, now Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, and then an aide to Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. The report, which was obtained by NBC News, was unsparing in its assessment. The MEK collaborated with the Ayatollah Khomeini to overthrow the former Shah of Iran. As part of that struggle, they assassinated at least six American citizens, supported the takeover of the U.S. Embassy, and opposed the release of the American hostages. In each case, the paper noted, bombs were the Mujahideen's weapon of choice, which they frequently employed against American targets. Quote, In the post-revolutionary political chaos, however, the Mujahideen lost political power to Iran's Islamic clergy. They then applied their dedication to armed struggle in the use of propaganda against the new Iranian government, launching a violent and polemical cycle of attack and reprisal. U.S. officials have said publicly that the information contained in the report was limited to unclassified material, but that it also drew on classified material in making its determination to add the MEK to the U.S. list of terrorist organizations. The MEK and its sister organizations have since the beginning been run by Masood and Mariam Rajavi, a husband and wife team who have maintained tight control despite assassination threats and internal dissent. Masood Rajavi founded the MEK, but since the U.S. invasion of Iraq has taken the back seat to his wife. The State Department, reportedly, the State Department report describes Rajavi as, quote, fundamentally undemocratic and not a viable alternative to the current government of Iran. And I'm going to leave this piece here. It does go on for a few more paragraphs, um, diving more deeply into the MEK. But I have some other stories coming up mentioning and covering the MEK. The first of two more stories on this topic, uh, both, by the way, written by Glenn Greenwald and published in Salon in 2012, um, is the first one's going to focus on uh, terrorism as a um, as the appropriate name for this type of assassination 
And the second one will dive more into the MEK. In the few venues which yesterday denounced as, quote, terrorism, the ongoing assassinations of Iranian scientists, there was intense backlash against the invocation of that term. That always happens whenever terrorism is applied to acts likely undertaken by Israel, the U.S., or its allies, rather than its traditional use, violence by Muslims against the U.S. and its allies. Because accusing Israel and or the U.S. of terrorism remains one of the greatest political taboos. But the case of these scientist assassinations particularly highlights how meaningless and manipulated this term is. The prime argument against calling these scientists' killings terrorism is that targeted killings, as opposed to indiscriminate ones, cannot qualify. After Andrew Sullivan wrote a post entitled The Terrorism We Support and rhetorically asked, Is not the group or nation responsible for the murder of civilians in another country terrorists? And then separately criticized the New York Times for failing to describe these killings as terrorism. Numerous readers objected to the use of this term on the ground that a targeted killing cannot be terrorism. Similarly, after I noted yesterday that Kevin Drum had denounced as terrorism a right-wing blogger's 2007 suggestion that Iran scientists be murdered and asked if it still applies that term to whoever is actually doing it now, he wrote a post strongly implying that this is terrorism. Thereafter, commenter after commenter at Mother Jones vehemently disagreed on the same ground, with Drum's suggestion that this is terrorism. Meanwhile, Jason Ponton, the editor-in-chief and publisher of Technology Review, actually claimed that my use of the term terrorism to describe these scientists' killings is, quote, what turns sober, hard-nosed people from the left. He's apparently been elected the spokesman for sober, hard-nosed people, turning away from the left, and then proceeded to insist over and over that these are merely targeted killings, not terrorism. Part of the problem here is the pretense that terrorism has some sort of fixed definitive meaning. It does not. As Professor Remy Brulin has so exhaustively documented, the meaning of the term has constantly morphed depending upon the momentary interests of those nations, usually the U.S. and Israel, most aggressively wielding it. It's a term of political propaganda, impoverished of any objective meaning and thus susceptible to limitless manipulation. Even the formal definition incorporated into U.S. law is incredibly vague. One could debate forever without resolution whether targeted killings of scientists fall within its scope, and that's by design. The less fixed the term is, the more flexibility there is in deciding what acts of violence are and are not included in its scope. But to really see what's going on here, let's look at how a very recent, very similar assassination plot was discussed. That occurred in October, when the U.S. accused Iran's Quds forces of recruiting a failed used car salesman in Texas to hire Mexican drug cartels to assassinate the Saudi ambassador at a restaurant in Washington, D.C. Let's put it to the side the intrinsic ridiculousness of the accusation. 
and assume it to be true. That plot did not involve anything remotely approaching, approaching indiscriminate killing. It was very specifically targeted at one person, the Saudi ambassador, a government official of a country which has extreme tensions with Iran. Indeed, the targeted ambassador is an official in a government that is engaged in all sorts of acts of war and is even linked to an actual terrorist plot, the 9-11 attacks. As Jonathan Schwartz put it at the time, the funny thing is, I bet the Saudi ambassador to the U.S. has closer ties to Al-Qaeda than 90% of the people we've killed with drones. Nonetheless, when that plot to kill the Saudi ambassador was, quote, revealed, virtually every last media outlet and government official branded it terrorism. It was just reflexively described that way, and I've never heard anyone anywhere object to the use of that term on the ground that targeted assassinations aren't terrorism, or on any other ground. One of the nation's alleged leading Iran experts, Ken Pollock of the Brookings Institution, immediately announced that the plot, if proven, quote, would represent a major escalation of Iranian terrorist operations against the United States. I could literally spend the rest of the day posting identical examples. That the targeted assassination plot aimed exclusively at the Saudi ambassador was terrorism was the automatic unexamined consensus claim from major media outlets, foreign policy experts, and the U.S. government. Indeed, the accused defendants were formally charged with, quote, international acts of terrorism, notwithstanding that it was to be a targeted assassination of a Saudi official. If anyone disputed this characterization, it escaped my notice, and I pay close attention to the debates over the terrorism label. Very few people, if anyone, objected at all when this allegedly Iranian plot was repeatedly denounced as terrorism. But now that it's widely believed that some combination of Israel and the U.S. are behind the ongoing plot to serially extinguish Iranian scientists... It's suddenly improper, even outrageous, to suggest that this is terrorism. That's because the U.S. and Israel are incapable of committing terrorism, by definition. Terrorism is only something done to those countries, and by Muslims, not the other way around. Does anyone have any doubt whatsoever that if Iran were sending hit squads to kill Israeli scientists in Tel Aviv, or was murdering a series of American scientists at Los Alamos, that those acts would be universally denounced as terrorism? And the only debate would be whether the retaliation should be nuclear, carpet bombing, or invasion. As always, terrorism is the most meaningless and thus most manipulated term of propaganda. It's always what they do, and never what we do. And here's the following piece from Glenn Greenwald as well. This one is titled Israel, M.E.K. and State Sponsor of Terror Groups. One of the most underreported political stories of the last year is a devoted advocacy of numerous prominent American political figures on behalf of an Iranian group 
long formally designated as a terrorist organization under U.S. law. A large bipartisan caste has received substantial fees from that group, the Mojahideen-e-Khalq, or MEK, and has then become their passionate defenders. The group of MEK shills includes former top Bush officials and other Republicans, Michael Mukasey, Fran Townsend, Andy Card, Tom Bridge, Rudy Giuliani, as well as prominent Democrats, Howard Dean, Ed Rendell, Bill Richardson, Wesley Clark. As the Christian Science Monitor reported last August, those individuals, quote, have been paid tens of thousands of dollars to speak in support of the MEK. No matter what one thinks of the MEK, it is formally designated as a terrorist group, and it is thus a felony under U.S. law to provide it with any, quote, material support. There are several remarkable aspects to this story. The first is that there are numerous Muslims inside the U.S. who have been prosecuted for providing, quote, material support for terrorism, for doing far less than these American politicians are publicly doing on behalf of a designated terrorist group. A Staten Island satellite TV salesman in 2009 was sentenced to five years in federal prison merely for including a Hezbollah TV channel as part of the satellite package he sold to customers. A Massachusetts resident, Tarek Mahana, is being prosecuted now, quote, for posting pro-jihadist material on the internet. A 24-year-old Pakistani legal resident living in Virginia, Jubair Ahmad, was indicted last September for uploading a five-minute video to YouTube that was highly critical of U.S. actions in the Muslim world, an allegedly criminal act simply because prosecutors claim he discussed the video in advance with the son of a leader of a designated terrorist organization. A Saudi Arabian graduate student, Sami Omar al-Husayn, was prosecuted simply for maintaining a website with links, quote, to groups that praised suicide bombings in Chechnya and Israel, and, quote, jihadist sites that solicited donations for extremist groups. He was ultimately acquitted. And last July, a 22-year-old former Penn State student and son of an instructor at the school, Emerson Winfield Begali, was indicted for, in the FBI's words, quote, repeatedly using the internet to promote violent jihad against Americans by posting comments on, quote, jihadist internet forum, including, quote, a comment online that praised the shootings at a Marine Corps base action, which former Obama lawyer Marty Letterman said, quote, does not at first glance appear to be different from the sort of advocacy of unlawful conduct that is entitled to substantial First Amendment protection. Yet here, we have numerous American political figures receiving substantial fees from a group which is legally designated under American law as a terrorist organization. Beyond that, they are meeting with the terrorist leaders of that group repeatedly. Howard Dean told NPR last year about the group's leader, Maryam Rajavi, quote, I've actually had dinner with Mrs. Rajavi on numerous occasions. I do not find her very terrorist-like. And has even insisted 
that she should be recognized as Iran's president. While Rudy Giuliani publicly told her at a Paris conference in December, quote, These are the most important yearnings of the human soul that you support, and for your organization to be described as a terrorist organization is just simply a disgrace. And after receiving fees from the terrorist group and meeting with its terror leaders, these American political figures are going forth and disseminating pro-MEK messages on its behalf and working to have it removed from the terrorist list. Given all the prosecutions of politically powerless Muslims for far fewer connections to terrorist groups than the actions of these powerful paid political figures, what conceivable argument is there for not prosecuting Dean, Giuliani, and the rest of them for providing, quote, material support for terrorism? What they are providing to MEK is the definitive material support. Although these activities should be protected free speech, the U.S. government has repeatedly imprisoned people for it. Indeed, as Georgetown law professor David Cole noted, these activities on behalf of MEK are clearly prosecutable as, quote, material support for terrorism under the standard advocated by the Bush and Obama Department of Justice and accepted by the Supreme Court in the Holder v. Humanitarian Law case of 2009 which held that even peaceful advocacy on behalf of a terrorist group can be prosecuted if done in coordination with the group. If we had anything even remotely approaching equal application of the law, Dean, Giuliani, Townsend, and the others would be facing prosecution as terrorist helpers. Then, there's, the long, there's long been the baffling question of where MEK was getting all of this money to pay these American officials. Indeed, the pro-MEK campaign has been lavishly funded. As the CSM noted, quote, Besides the string of well-attended events at prestigious American hotels and locations, and in Paris, Brussels, and Berlin, the campaign has included full-page advertisements in the New York Times and Washington Post, which can cost $175,000 apiece. MEK is basically little more than a nomadic cult. After they sided with Saddam Hussein in his war with Iran, they were widely loathed in Iran, and their 3,400 members long lived in camps in Iraq, but then the Malaki government no longer wants them there. How has this ragtag terrorist cult of Iranian dissent, dissidents, who are largely despised in Iran, able to fund such expensive campaigns and to keep U.S. officials on its dole? All of these mysteries receive substantial clarity from an NBC News report by Richard Engel and Robert Windrum yesterday. Citing two anonymous, quote, senior U.S. officials, that report makes two amazing claims. One, that it was MEK which perpetrated the string of assassinations of Iranian nuclear scientists. And two, the terrorist group is, quote, financed, trained, and armed by Israel's secret service. These senior officials also admitted that the Obama administration is aware of the assassination campaign, but claims it has no direct involvement. Iran has long insisted the is Israel and the U.S., are using MEK to carry out terrorist attacks on its soil, including the murder of its scientists. And NBC notes that these acknowledgments, quote, confirm charges leveled by Iran's leaders.
If these senior U.S. officials are telling the truth, there are a number of vital questions and conclusions raised by this. First, it would mean that the assurances by MEK's paid American shills, such as Howard Dean, that, quote, they are unarmed, are totally false. Whoever murdered these scientists is obviously well-armed. Second, this should completely gut the effort to remove MEK from the list of designated terrorist groups. After all, murdering Iran's scientists through the use of bombs and guns is a defining act of a terror group, at least as U.S. law attempts to define the term. Third, this should forever resolve the debate in which I was involved last month about whether the attack on these Iranian scientists constitutes terrorism. As Daniel Larson put it yesterday, quote, If true, the murders of Iranian nuclear scientists with bombs have been committed by a recognized terrorist group. Can everyone acknowledge at this point that these attacks were acts of terrorism? Fourth, and most important, if this report is true, is this not definitive proof that Israel is, by definition, a so-called state sponsor of terrorism? Leaving everything else aside, if Israel, as NBC reports, has, quote, financed, trained, and armed a group of officially designated by the United States government as a terrorist organization, isn't that the definitive act of how one becomes an official state sponsor of terrorism? Amazingly, as Daniel Larison notes, one of the people who most vocally attacked me for labeling the murder of Iranian scientists as terrorism and for generally arguing that terrorism is a meaningless, cynically applied term, commentaries Jonathan Tobin, yesterday issued a justification for why Israel should be working with terrorist groups like MEK. As Larison wrote about Tobin's article, quote, In other words... Israeli state sponsorship of a terrorist group is acceptable because it is in a good cause. Because Israel is overreacting to a perceived threat from Iran, Tobin believes it is entirely defensible for Israel to partner with a recognized terrorist group. In other words, Tobin believes that terrorism is entirely defensible so long as it is committed by the right people and directed at the right targets. It's as if he is going out of his way to vindicate Glenn Greenwald. Of course, as I documented in my last book, those who are politically and financially well-connected are free to commit even the most egregious crimes. For that reason, the very idea of prosecuting Giuliani, Rendell, Ridge, Townsend, Dean, and friends for their paid labor on behalf of a terrorist group is unthinkable, suggestion not fit for decent company. Even though powerless Muslims have been viciously prosecuted for far less egregious connections to such groups. But this incident also underscores a specific point that the term terrorism is so completely meaningless, manipulated, and mischievous. It's just a cynical term designed to delegitimize violence and even political acts undertaken by America's enemies, while shielding from criticism the actual terrorism undertaken by itself and its allies. The spectacle whereby a designated terrorist group can pay top American politicians to advocate for them, even as they engage in violent terrorist acts, all while being trained, funded, and aided by America's top client state, should forever end the controversy over that glaringly obvious proposition. And in the same year that this was written, 
back in 2012, President Obama and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton took the MEK off of the terrorist list. So the the actions, the, the money that the MEK was paying, whether that money was directly from Israel's Mossad or from elsewhere, worked well in the MEK's favor. The MEK is, is consistently still paraded by many bipartisanly as a future leadership of Iran. So let's move on from this topic uh, and move into some other somewhat related topics. Uh, Next up is a piece published at the LA Progressive and written by Norman Solomon. Hey, Joe, where are you going with that Pentagon in your hands? By all accounts, the frontrunner to be Joe Biden's pick for Secretary of Defense is Michelle Flournoy. It's a prospect that should do more than set off alarm bells. It should be understood as a scenario for the president-elect to stick his middle fingers in the eyes of Americans who are fed up with endless war and ongoing militarism. Warning and petitioning Biden to dissuade him from a Flournoy nomination will probably have scant chances of success. But if Biden puts her name forward, activists should quickly launch an all-out effort to block Senate confirmation. As the Biden administration takes office, progressives have an opportunity to affirm and amplify the position that Martin Luther King Jr. boldly articulated when he insisted that, quote, I never intend to adjust myself to the madness of militarism. In the present day, the pernicious and lucrative aspects of that madness are personified in the favorite to be Biden's defense secretary. Days ago, the Project on Government Oversight, POGO, published a detailed analysis under the headline, Should Michelle Flournoy be Secretary of Defense? The well-documented answer? No. Citing extensive defense industry ties, POGO provided an overview of Flournoy's revolving door career when she wasn't oiling the war machine in the Clinton and Obama administrations. Flournoy was profiteering from servicing that machine. Quote, In 2002, she went from positions in the Pentagon and the National Defense University to the mainstream but hawkish Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is largely funded by industry and Pentagon contributions. Five years later, she co-founded the second most heavily contractor-funded think tank in Washington, the highly influential Center for a New American Security. That became a stepping stone to her role as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy in the Obama administration. From there, she rotated to the Boston Consulting Group, after which the firm's military contracts expanded from $1.6 million to $32 million in three years. She also joined the board of Booz Allen Hamilton, a consulting firm laden with defense contracts. In 2017, she co-founded West Exec Advisors, helping defense corporations market their products to the Pentagon and other agencies. 
running parallel to Flournoy's financial conflicts of interest, was her long record of advocacy for military conflicts. Quote, Flournoy was widely considered to have been one of Obama's more hawkish advisors and helped mastermind the escalation of the disastrous war in Afghanistan. Arwa Madawi pointed out in a November 21 Guardian piece. She has called for increased defense spending, arguing in a 2017 Washington Post op-ed that Trump was, quote, right to raise the need for more defense dollars. She has complained that Obama didn't use military force enough, particularly in Syria. She supported the wars in Iraq and Libya. The president-elect is hardly in a position to hold such a record against prospective appointees. He has never fully acknowledged, much less renounced, his own roles in advocating for disastrous U.S. wars, most notably, and tragically, the war in Iraq. Biden hasn't gotten his story straight or come clean about supporting the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003. His specious claims that he didn't really support the invasion have been gross misrepresentations of the historical record. Actually, Biden was the Democrat in the Senate who exerted the most leverage in support of the Iraq invasion, and he did so with public enthusiasm. The foreseeable dangers of picking Flournoy to run the Pentagon are compounded by Biden's selection of Antony Blinken to be Secretary of State. It was Blinken who, 18 years ago, served as staff director for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, while its chairman, Joe Biden, oversaw the pivotal and badly skewed two-day hearing in summer of 2002 that greased the congressional skids for approving an invasion of Iraq. Blinken, along with Flournoy, co-founded West Exec Advisors, which the Washington Post breaking news coverage of the Blinken nomination gingerly described as, quote, a political strategy firm. It was a nice euphemism, in contrast to how Pogo describes the West Exec Advisor's mission, quote, helping defense corporations market their products to the Pentagon and other agencies. The term war profiteering would be even more apt. If past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior, there are ample reasons for apprehension about the top of the military and foreign policy team that Biden has begun to install for his presidency. But realism should not lead to fatalism or passivity. And while Biden uh, retools the war hawk machine and the, the warmonger leadership in the U.S., Boris Johnson is doing similarly in the U.K., This is published by StopWar.org.uk as written by Tarina Hine. When £21.5 billion can be found to spend on war, we are left puzzled as to why there are no funds for sick pay or to help schools implement COVID-19 restrictions. The government has made clear its priorities by granting the biggest increase in military spending in 30 years while simultaneously announcing a pay freeze for millions of workers. The widely reported $16.5 billion increase does not include the increases already agreed, 
Taken together, this military extravagance amounts to the colossal sum of $21.5 billion, a 10 to 15% rise for the remainder of this parliament. This is on top of the MOD's current $41.5 billion annual budget. The UK already has the sixth largest defense budget in the world and tops the league table of military spending in Europe. So why this massive increase? According to Boris Johnson, Britain has been, quote, a nation in retreat and needs to show the world a global Britain beyond Brexit. We need to compete militarily with cyber weapons, give the army whatever it needs, and provide the navy with ships so that Britain can once again rule the waves. And to prove our commitment to the new U.S. administration, we must reaffirm our position within NATO as its second biggest contributor. But do not be fooled. This is not spending to, quote, defend the realm, as Johnson has claimed. It is spending for prestige and status. Its aim, as the Prime Minister himself pointed out, is to bolster our global influence. It is a move which has united the the Tory backbenchers and has received support from many on the Labour benches. The Prime Minister's move was clearly designed to get his backbenchers on side after a period of embarrassing government U-turns and days of chaos surrounding Dominic Cummings' ignominious departure from Downing Street. It also helps distract from the mess the government has made of its COVID-19 response. Unlike with the free school meals debacle, the economically prudent have failed to ask where the money will come from. We were told there is no money to feed hungry children, as the economy has suffered, quote, the biggest annual contraction for 300 years. Yet apparently, it's okay to spend over $21 billion extra on the military. And I'm going to diverge from the story a moment here, but I, I because I don't think the two are not connected. If your population is spiraling downwards into um, large areas and large groups of uh, destitution, what you need to remain in power as a government is a powerful powerful military that can quell any insurrectionist tendencies from the public. Back to the story. We will no doubt be hearing more about the dire economic conditions when Rishi Sunak presents his 2021-2022 spending review. What we are unlikely to hear is that similar billions will be spent on the NHS, or on adult social care, or on pay rises for frontline workers. When £21 billion can be found to spend on war, we are left puzzling about why there is no announcement to fund sick pay so workers can isolate during the pandemic, or to help schools implement COVID-19 restrictions, or provide laptops for students missing school to self-isolate. Paltry amounts, by comparison. It was suggested that cuts to overseas aid budget might help pay this extravagant military bill. Yet it is generally thought that money spent on aid is a far less costly way to reduce international threats. But let us not forget this announcement is not about making us safe. 
We live in a country where families can't get funeral costs covered when their loved ones die, where food bank usage has expanded beyond recognition, and homelessness is at a level not seen for decades. A country where frontline workers have put their lives at risk throughout the pandemic and are clapped by way of thanks. It is welcomed that NHS frontline workers will be exempt from the public sector pay freeze, but it is clear teachers, firefighters, and other NHS workers will not be. To help put into perspective the vast sums being discussed, 21.5 billion pounds equates to almost twice that required to enable the current social care system to cope with expected demand and be properly staffed over the next four years. Or, it could provide funding to build 60 new hospitals. £21.5 billion is £6 billion more than the savings made by the proposed public sector pay freeze. The £3 billion being spent on the new Queen Elizabeth aircraft carrier is 100 times more than the cost of providing free school meals for the school holidays. In its defense, we are told that military procurement will aid job creation, but these are jobs and weapons of war. Why not invest in green technology instead? The £12 billion announced for the Conservatives' Green Revolution include considerable creative accounting, with numerous old projects being dressed up as new. Surely this is where the future lies and where serious investment should be directed. The two biggest threats today are the climate crisis and the pandemic. Investing in weapons of war will keep us safe from neither. If the government was interested in either protecting or defending the British people, its first priority would not be to pour even more money into its inflated military. Next up is a piece published by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists at thebulletin.org. This piece is written by Zia Mian. It is called Taking the Nuclear Ban Treaty Forward. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons makes the case the nuclear weapons are in fundamental conflict with basic humanitarian sensibilities and international law. If it is to ultimately be successful, this view will have to become the common sense of the world. For treaty parties and supporters, the challenge of nuclear disarmament politics going forward will be getting publics and policy makers in nuclear weapon states and their allies to set aside their long-held, deeply institutionalized sense of nuclear superiority and moral exceptionalism and accept the treaty's humanitarian imperative, its lawfulness, and the obligations that follow. The nine countries with nuclear weapons all stayed away from the talks, and some of them will work hard to prevent the treaty gaining ground. The key to long-term progress will be the United States, which more than any other country has set the global nuclear agenda since it made the first nuclear weapons and remains the only country ever to have used them in war. It is also the country most responsible for the existing international system. The treaty requires parties to make its universalization part of their political engagement with nuclear weapon states. Article 12 of the treaty mandates that states practice disarmament, diplomacy, and more. It declares that, quote, 
Each state party shall encourage states not party to this treaty to ratify, accept, approve, or accede to the treaty, with the goals of universal adherence of all states to the treaty. This will require new kinds of official and public engagement with weapon states and opens the door for new kinds of transnational citizen diplomacy on disarmament. A key step in the new disarmament politics must be discussion of the forms that this encouragement can take and what role citizens of banned treaty states and of nuclear weapon states can and should play in this effort. To be taken seriously by the nuclear weapon states, the growing community of banned treaty states and peace activists worldwide must be willing to continue to be bold and take political risks as they did in getting the treaty. They must put at the heart of their relationship with the weapon states the treaty's acknowledgement of, quote, the ethical imperatives for nuclear disarmament and the urgency of achieving and maintaining a nuclear weapon-free world, which is a global public good of the highest order, serving both national and collective security interests. Persuading nuclear weapon states to join the treaty will not be easy. It will require that governments and citizens use new forms of international politics that the treaty empowers. For example, politically charged demands for nuclear disarmament, perhaps avoided as too sensitive a topic in the past, can now be brought up as a matter of course when presidents and prime ministers from banned treaty states meet with their counterparts in nuclear weapon states. Along with trade and investment in tourism and sports delegations, banned treaty countries can now sponsor disarmament delegations to explain why they signed the treaty and why weapon states should do the same. Along with these types of engagement, of course, there can also be sanctions and boycotts. The banned treaty permits a politics of nuclear naming and shaming, shunning, and divestment. These tools are well established when it comes to human rights and war crimes. They can be applied with new force to nuclear weapon sites, institutions, officials, and employees. If they are to prevail, the banned treaty states will need to hold together and expand their coalition and keep working with civil society groups. Together they will need to present unified demands at the UN General Assembly and in other international forums that weapon states join the treaty. They can hold joint Article 12 summits and support campaigns in the weapon states to focus attention and build support for the treaty. Banned treaty states should could seek to further embed the treaty's prohibitions into international law by seeking an amendment to the statute of the International Criminal Court to make the use of nuclear weapons a war crime. The court statute permits such an amendment if it relates to, quote, weapons, projectiles, and materials and methods of warfare which are of a nature to cause superfluous injury or unnecessary suffering or which are inherently indiscriminate in violation of the international law of armed conflict, provided that such weapons, projectiles, and material and methods of warfare are the subject of a comprehensive prohibition. The ban treaty is a comprehensive prohibition, and many banned states are signatories of the International Criminal Court Statute and could build a majority in support of such an amendment. And finally, a piece on the same topic from Dimity Hawkins, 
this is published in the guardian and uh goes to the question of reparations and we hear about reparations in the um causes of genocides largely like the genocide of the africans brought to the united states to serve as slaves and the genocide of the native peoples who lived in the united states which kind of follows the genocide of native peoples all over the world by colonizers um but this reparations would be for the nuclear testing that we imposed on the south pacific nuclear weapons will soon be illegal just over 75 years since their devastation was first unleashed on the world the global community has rallied to bring into force a ban through the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons late on saturday night in new york the 50th country the central american nation of honduras ratified the treaty it will become international law in 90 days for many across the pacific region this is a momentous achievement and one that has been long called for over the second half of the 20th century 315 nuclear weapons tests were conducted by so-called friendly or colonizing forces in the marshall islands kiribati australia and maui nui french polynesia the united states britain france used largely colonized lands to test their nuclear weapons leaving behind not only harmful physical legacies but psychological and political scars as well survivors of these tests and their descendants have continued to raise their voices against these weapons they are vocal resistors and educators the reluctant but intense knowledge holders of the nuclear reality of our region in the formation of the nuclear ban treaty pacific survivor voices were prominent alongside those of hibakusha survivors from japan pacific islands were early adopters of the treaty fiji kiribati palau samoa vanuatu tuvalu new zealand and nauru have signed and ratified niui and cook islands have acceded australia is notably absent reflecting the vested interests of its alliance partner the united states and a misplaced reliance on an outdated and opaque doctrines of extended nuclear deterrence and the treaty is set to become law despite opposition from the five original nuclear powers the u.s russia china britain and france the trump administration has written to treaty signatories saying the treaty is quote a strategic error and urging them to rescind their ratifications in contrast for many pacific nations the lived experience of 50 years of nuclear testing still drives their stance today on the day fiji ratified the treaty this year the country's high commissioner to the united nations dr satyendra prasad said quote pacific islanders continue to be exposed to nuclear radiation nuclear explosion explosions we knew very well do not observe national borders they don't respect visa regimes nor does nuclear waste respect time it remains 
for generations. For many survivors, the intergenerational impacts of the testing remain central to justice. Auntie Sue Coleman Hazeldine, a Kokaltha Mula woman from South Australia, was a child when she was subjected to nuclear fallout from the British nuclear testing in the 1950s. She declared in an address to a UN conference in 2014, quote, We want nuclear weapons permanently banned and the uranium that can create them left in the ground. If you love your own children and care for the children of the world, you will find the courage to stand up and say, enough. The unresolved injustice in the region drives many to support the new treaty, which bans the use, threat of use, and the testing of nuclear weapons. Amongst its objectives, there are what are termed, quote, positive obligations. These include assistance to victims of nuclear weapons use and testing, as well as environmental remediation for areas affected, a marked shift to include humanitarian law alongside the more traditional nuclear disarmament law. The treaty calls for age and gender-sensitive assistance, including medical care, rehabilitation, and psychological support. But importantly, it does not abrogate responsibility for those who used nuclear weapons. A former Marshall Islands foreign minister, the late Tony de Broom, spoke often of the long-term impact of U.S. nuclear testing on his people. He frequently recalled his own childhood experience of the tests. Quote, Every time one of those things went off, it was yet another trauma. I would challenge anyone to live through 12 years of testing in the Marshalls. That does not come away with a permanent scar somewhere in your system. That is a mark of that period. The legacy of environmental, human, and cultural harms is compounded by immense grief and frustration due to opaque record-keeping and deliberate subterfuge on behalf of the states responsible for the testing. Historical truth-telling will be key to nuclear justice for many across the Pacific. Calling for an opening up of nuclear testing records held by the U.S., de Broom said, quote, You cannot continue to withhold the necessary information that we need in order to make decisions on issues that are fair and proper for our people. We need a new commitment to transparency and accountability from all nations involved in historic nuclear testing. After generations of nuclear experimentation, the impacts of these weapons tests and resulting nuclear waste across lands and ocean remain to be studied across the Pacific. The removal of historical silences is necessary for such studies to even begin. This new treaty enters international law with many promises for nuclear justice. It is well past time. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can check out all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll find a link there to send me a message, and you'll also find those links there to make a donation. And if you want to listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7, you can go to movingtrainradio.com. And here is your moment of zen. Thanks for listening. 
I wanted to write about war from another point of view. Because after I uh, left the shipyard, or, or I, I left the shipyard in order to enlist in the Air Force, I became a bombardier in the United States Air Force. And uh, I don't know if I should tell you what war I was in, but uh, I should, maybe I will, because otherwise you might think it was the Spanish-American War. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, was a, I was a bombardier in the Air Force in World War II, and I, I enlisted with all the enthusiasm that so many people went into World War II, because as you know, that was the good war. Although if you, re if you look at Studs Terkel's oral history of the good war, you'll notice it has quotation marks around it. The good war in quotation marks. Because so many of the people he interviewed who were in that good war came out of that war uh, not as certain as they had gone into it. Uh, not because they had developed a, an affinity for fascism. Uh, because that was what gave us the moral purpose, that was what gave us the enthusiasm, a war against fascism. And the assumption was, a very dangerous assumption, that if the enemy is evil, then your side must be good. You see. Uh, and the enemy was evil. Yeah, I mean, the, the enemy was unmistakably evil, but where we made the mistake was in thinking that therefore our side was good. And if the enemy commits atrocities, therefore, well, certainly our side wouldn't do that. But we can, we, 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 we didn't match the Holocaust. I mean, that's a unique event uh, in, in World War II. Uh, but in our indiscriminate bombing of civilian populations, deliberate bombing of civilian populations, of working class populations in German cities and Japanese cities, culminating with the Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, we committed atrocities. Uh, what happened in World War II was what happens in war generally, and that is whatever the initiating cause and however clear the moral uh, reason is for the war in which some people look better, so one side looks better than the others, by the time a war ends, both sides have been engaged in evil. And so I came to the conclusion that uh, I, I simply came to the conclusion that war uh, was an unacceptable way of solving whatever problems there were in the world, that there would be problems of tyranny, there would be problems of injustice, there would be problems of nations crossing frontiers, and, uh, and that injustice in the world and, and tyrannies in the world should not be tolerated and should be fought and should be resisted. But the one thing that must not be used to solve that problem is war, because war is, at, as the, is inevitably the indiscriminate killing of large numbers of people, and that fact overwhelms whatever moral cause is somewhere buried uh, in the history of that war. So I, I came out of, uh, and so I, I, I wasn't going to, um, I obviously was not going to teach about war in the same way. Uh, after my experience. And I, want, I wanted to tell about war from the standpoint, not of the generals and the military heroes, but from the standpoint of, of the ordinary guys who, who were in the war. I wanted, uh, or maybe even to tell us the story of wars from the standpoint of the enemy, of the other side. How does the Mexican war look to the Mexicans?